This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Coming to you live from the Great White North and my cozy little studio in the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto, Canada, and our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and FM 96.7. Welcome aboard. It is so good uh, to be here. Uh, Antonio Paris, a professor of astronomy at St. Petersburg College and the director of planetarium and space programs at the Museum of Science and Industry in Tampa, is standing by, and we'll get to him shortly, to discuss how to get to Mars, how to build a colony on Mars, and uh, the absolute necessity of getting there, and getting there quickly, uh, in advance of some cataclysmic event, some extinction event here on Earth which, of course, is very timely for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, NASA is uh, preparing, at least according to a report in the uh, National Post up here, NASA is preparing to announce that water has been found on Mars. Very timely indeed. Uh, And, um, of course, the other uh, event going on, we'll touch on that as well, and that has to do with the uh, blood moon, the final in the tetrad. Uh, of four blood moons, uh, very uh, clearly visible in uh, certain areas of North America, not so much here in Toronto. It's uh, obscured by some clouds, but we've had some some reports from around the country and south of the border uh, where people are seeing uh, the, the, the super moon, very low on the horizon, a blood moon, and of course a, a lunar eclipse all wrapped up into one. And uh, this, of course, has, for those paying attention to the program, uh, this is all wrapped up in a lot of talk about uh, the apocalypse, end times, uh, harbingers. What is this a harbinger of? Uh, so we'll, we'll get to that uh, with Antonio Paris as well. Uh, let me just point out uh, that uh, Ian Robertson is here, of course, in the other studio, twisting the knobs and the dials, uh, essentially piloting uh, this vessel as we uh, fly on through till morning. And Albert Vinzel, of course, is here running our Hangout on Air, or HOA. And if you want to watch the live stream of the program, go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett. S as in Simon, Y because I love you, T at Richard Serrett. And you click on the tweet uh, near the top of the stream, and it has an HOA link in it. You just click on that, and voila! Welcome to the inner sanctum, and thanks for flying the friendly skies of the conspiracy show. So you'll you'll see me, and you'll be able to see Antonio Paris on his webcam. We hope. Uh, all right. So um, tonight we've got uh, the blood moon, the final tetrad of the blood moons, and uh, the lunar eclipse, a super moon. 
uh, all wrapped up, as I said, into this apocalyptic talk. Uh, the Internet has been on fire with this for some time. And uh, we'll find out from Antonio Paris what he has to say about it. Let me just mention, my word, he's a very interesting man with some very heavy credentials. He is, as I mentioned, a professor of astronomy at St. Petersburg College, the director of planetarium and space programs at the Museum of Science and Industry in Tampa, Florida. Sorry to hear, uh, he may be sorry to hear that our Blue Jays <laughs> just swept the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, just my luck, right? The, it's been a 23-year drought since the Blue Jays have been in postseason, and this may be the year that everything ends. <laughs> so we'll never see October. All right, uh, back to uh, Antonio. His, uh, his course uh, centers on a survey of astronomy and an introduction to the characteristics, origin, and evolution of the solar system, galaxies, and the universe. Additionally... He incorporates ancient astronomy, cosmology, astrophysics, interstellar travel, and the search for life in the universe into his lectures. Professor Paris, moreover, is the chief scientist at the Center for Planetary Science, a science outreach program promoting astronomy, planetary science, and astrophysics to the next generation of space explorers. He has a Master's of Science in Planetary Science from the American Public University and was awarded a Bronze Star Medal for Valor while serving as a U.S. Army intelligence officer in Iraq. My word! Professor Paris's latest publication is The Physiological and Psychological Aspects of Sending Humans to Mars, published in the Washington Academy of Sciences in 2015. His research centers on the implications of prolonged spaceflight, which includes radiation, the cardiovascular system in space, and long-term nutritional concerns in a microgravity environment. He's the author of two books, Aerial Phenomena and Space Science. Additionally, he's also the director-producer for the documentaries Area 51, A History of This Reclusive Base, and Skinwalker. He's appeared in dozens of radio show web, uh, shows, webcasts, and TV shows, including Unsealed and Close Encounters, and now he's right here on The Conspiracy Show. Professor Paris, I presume, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. I hope you can hear me fine. Uh, indeed, I can, and uh, welcome to our, our Hangout on Air as well. All yeah, right. no, thanks for the invite. My, my, what a, uh, an incredible resume you have. Um, I, I guess I'm going to just jump right in, and I'm going to ask you, because it's right out there staring us all in the face tonight, and of course that is the, uh, the blood moon, the final in this tetrad of four um, uh, blood moons. Uh, we have a supermoon, a, ecl- a lunar eclipse, and a blood moon all wrapped up into one. And, of course, you know all too well the chatter out there that this somehow is a harbinger, uh, 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 you know, a heavenly sign uh, that something evil this way comes. <laughs> well, I've, I've got bad news for everyone. Um, we're all going to wake up tomorrow, go to work, and absolutely nothing is going to happen. We're all going to so, work tomorrow. Uh, that I- is horrible news. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope nobody quit their jobs or, or spend their hard-earned money. Um, guys, this is a, it, it's a, it's a really exciting event. Um, it doesn't happen too often, you know, about every 33 years. Um, but it, like I said, it, it's happened already four times in the last hundred years, and we're still here, right? So Right. But you um, must admit yeah, that you know, there is another layer to this, uh, Professor Paris. Sure. The other layer being that, uh, okay, we've had four of them, though, in a fairly, like within 18 months, and mm-hmm. 
and coincidentally, they happen to fall on Jewish high holidays, which is, you know, and now granted, the Hebrew calendar is a lunar calendar, so that makes sense. But it, I mean, that's an extra layer there that is that makes this far more out of the ordinary than just something that happens every 33 years. Wouldn't yeah, you agree? It, 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 yeah, it, it, I, I agree with you. It is, in a sense, mysterious. It does have a little uh, a sense of excitement to it, and we can, I can, we can spend hours just talking about what other coincidences could transpire during these four eclipses. But, you know, uh, you know, I, I feel pretty comfortable, at least the science shows, that there's really nothing going to happen. You know, um, there might be an accident tomorrow or, or a plane crash, and somebody, uh, you know, somebody will attribute that to, to the lunar eclipse. You know, that's just uh, these websites and conspiracy groups, uh, that's, that's, they, that's how they function. Um, but, you know, as a scientist, I, I feel pretty comfortable that, you know, nothing's going to happen. There's there's no science that any catastrophic events, as far as I know, are, are in the near future. Um, are there coincidences? Yeah, sure. You know, can I say the blood moon is why the Tampa Bay lost today? I can say that too all day. Um, Could have something to do with Josh it, Donaldson. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's fun to talk about what could and could not happen, but... You know, as a scientist uh, and as a skeptic, I look at the data, and there's really, really no hard science to back up any of that stuff. All right. So uh, I'm sure you know we'll 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 touch on this again uh, throughout the hour yeah, at sure. some point. But uh, you do uh, uh, talk about extinction events. This uh, this is something you are. Yeah, sure. uh, concerned about now. Uh, mm-hmm. Aside from you know the, the, these harbingers or heavenly signs, what in particular has you most concerned? Uh, in terms of an extinction event, is it a, a, a comet? Is it an asteroid collision? What's out there lurking I, I, in the blackness I, I of space? Say, I would say, in the near future, what really concerns me more is probably a human, uh, human, uh, you know, extinction event. Whether it's a virus, a disease, war, war, especially, especially in our population. But if we pull that out of the side, a human factor. Um, you know, the, the, the Earth has seen past extinction events, at least five in the last 400 million years. I would say that the most concerned right now would probably be uh, an impactor, like an asteroid or a comet. And recently, scientists like myself have been worried about a potential gamma ray burst or even a corona mass ejection could potentially cause a, uh, a mass extinction event. So uh, uh, an EMP, uh, another Carrington mm-hmm. event that uh, that happened in the 19th century that at that time wasn't even noticed, uh, aside from it, the fact that it knocked out the telegraph system. But of course now, <laughs> of course, we're so dependent on electronics that I've mm-hmm. heard uh, literally, you know, within six months of such an event, you could have 90% of the world's population extinct. That's how dependent we are on electricity. I totally agree with you. Uh, we're we're all connected with with electricity, but it's probably more than that. You know um, how we power our houses, hospitals, you name it. Everything depends on electricity, and and if those things go, I mean, you literally within months, millions and millions of people will die. And I think the the most dangerous thing about that is is the human factor. Humans humans will have to fight for survival, and that's that's basically where the famine and destruction comes would be the human-to-human contact and the, the after effects of any any type of tragedy. We've seen it in Katrina. We've seen it in uh, earthquakes where it's it's the human 
it's, it's actually the humans that are more of a threat than the post event itself. Right. I agree with you. You know, people are fond of mm -hmm. saying things like, oh, man is at his best when things are at their worst. Well, that's true for about the first 24 hours. And exactly. then things get ugly, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we saw that here in Florida, in the, uh, you know, there Katrina in New Orleans, where um, it was not, you know, the hurricane did kill a lot of people, but it was it was the, the rioting, the after effects that really caused a lot of damage itself. And it's, if you go to New Orleans now, a lot of that stuff still has not been uh, repaired. It, it still looks like the hurricane was yesterday. Um, things have been abandoned, they're not being taken care of, and people are still sick. All right. So uh, a mass coronal ejection, certainly, uh, apparently we're mm -hmm. overdue for one of those. Um, sure. w but out there, I mean, since you are, uh, well, well, we've got the uh, the music percolating up here, so we'll take a time out. We'll, we'll talk uh, more about possible ex extinction events, which uh, really provide the impetus for us getting off planet as quickly as possible, and uh, that would be the red planet. We'll talk about how we can manage to do that in a hurry. My conversation with Professor Antonio Paris continues on the other side. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show, and my name is Richard Serrett. Just a reminder, season four of the television program, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, debuting soon across Canada on Vision TV, season four, brand new episodes. Look for that. And I'll, uh, I'll, keep try, I'll try to, uh, to get an exact air date, uh, but just keep uh, checking the local listings, as they say, of Vision TV. All right, uh, Professor Antonio Paris is with us, and we are talking about, uh, among other things, an extinction event, um, and uh, which might, sort of, uh, in preparing for such an eventuality, might provide the impetus for us getting off planet and uh, colonizing Mars. Um, now, you, you mentioned the EMP, and, and we also talked about asteroids. Um, mm -hmm. Are there any particular uh, uh, rocks out there uh, that, that concern you? That uh, I mean, we occasionally hear of uh, a near miss, which could be, you know, several hundred mm -hmm. thousand miles. But is there anything else um, on, looming on the horizon your even mildly concerned about? No, well, probably about the year 2029, 2030, there's a relatively decent-sized uh, asteroid called Apophis, and it's about 325 meters, so that's, that's decent enough to cause some catastrophic uh, impact here, um, but it's, it's not big for an, uh, you know, an extinction event. It's, it's not it's a planet killer. Them. It's not a planet yeah, killer. Yeah, it'll, it'll miss us by about 31, about 19,000 miles. So it's, you know, that's relatively close. Um, but as far as we know in the horizon, and I, I've been studying uh, near-Earth objects, which, you know, NEOs for a while, and I, there are really not many that, you know, that, that really concern me right now. But, that, you know, that, that's not to point out that there are none that we don't see. There, you know, there could be a lot of them that are, are behind the sun, which is very, very difficult for us to see. And those are the ones we really worry about. You know, we know the ones that we can see, but it's the ones that we cannot see are the ones that are potential catastrophic. Um, for something that, that's, that's catastrophic would be something at least one mile wide. Um, that's something that will probably cause mass extension. But, you know, if, if history shows, you know, 
there's always a, a small survivability rate. So mankind perhaps could survive um, if we stay uh, somewhere deep enough for, for a, a period long of time where the radiation dissipates um, and the cloud cover dissipates. But if, if, if you notice in the last you know 400 million years, there's, there's been five massive extinction events, but, but somehow nature, at least the small creatures, were able to survive and flourish again. So... You know, if there is a mass extinction event in the future, I, I think there's a good chance that um, some some species will still survive. But nevertheless, it, there comes at a point, you know, we estimate at least Earth has at least 600 million to perhaps 1 billion years left before the sun begins to grow. And uh, we, we lose the water, we lose the oceans, we lose the atmosphere. So that's some time for us to think about and contemplate where we need to go to survive as a species. And you mentioned that uh, eventually we will have to emigrate off the planet. Um, and Well, there's so, a line of so thinking that that is sort of our destiny, too, uh, to spread yeah. our seed out there. Uh, we would have to if, if, if we're going to survive as a human species because Earth, Earth, Earth is 4.5 billion years old. And when you look at it, it's, it's basically on Social Security right now. It's retired. It's on Social Security. And 600 million years in the timeline is not a lot, you know, compared to the to the uh, uh, age of the universe. Mars Mars is a good first stop. It's like you know that pit stop on your way to uh, Disney or where you know where your family vacation is. But eventually, uh, the red giant will also make Mars uh, not hospitable. It's, it's, it already has a thin atmosphere. It doesn't have a uh, a warm core, thus no magnetosphere. So the first colonies on Mars will have a lot of stuff on their plate. You know, radiation is going to be a major concern. Uh, the Martian regolith and dust is very dangerous. How so? Uh, How into, so? Yeah, well, if it, 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 it gets into the lung system, it's, it's basically carbon dioxide glass that you're breathing. Carbon so, dioxide and, and glass. Yeah, and, wow. and it also it's really destructive on the rovers, if you notice the... Uh, um, so the solar panels will be basically useless. The good thing about Mars is it has a lot of winds. So it is it does clean off a lot of the solar panels. All right. What do you make of this? Uh, excuse me, Professor Paris. This uh, having you on quite timely because uh, according to some reports, NASA tomorrow will announce that they have discovered water on the red planet. How mm -hmm. important is that uh, to uh, for future plans of, of, of colonization? It's very important that water water can be used for so many things. Let's not even talk about drinking and potable water, but water can, the hydrogen can be used for power. Uh, the oxygen itself can be extracted from the water, so it has multiple uses. Um, I, I don't know what they're going to announce tomorrow. I, I think I'm leaning on what you're saying. I, I, I think that's what it is. It's some type of uh, water was found, or at least ancient evidence of water, um, perhaps really deep in the regolith. Uh, it, with such a thin atmosphere, the only possible places where water can survive, where, where it's still intact, is probably really deep fissures or, or uh, craters where there perhaps might be some still perpetual darkness, like on the moon, and perhaps the, the water there can, can survive. Uh, but the thin atmosphere and the low pressure really makes it almost impossible for water on the surface to, to, uh, to exist. That's uh, not to say it could be deep in the water or something. It's kind of cool, but um, if that's the, if that's tomorrow's announcement, that's that's huge. That uh, that makes it a little easier for humans to survive on the red planet. 
Uh, how important would the existence of water be on the planet if we aim, and I don't know if this is uh, achievable, and I'm projecting, you know, hundreds of hundreds of years into the future, but how important mm-hmm. is water uh, for terraforming a planet? And maybe you can explain it, what in terraforming uh, is. Yeah, terraforming is, is trying to uh, reverse at least the, the, the process of an atmosphere being degraded and making the atmosphere uh, hospital again. You know, that's basically lots of water in the atmosphere. Um, and the difficulty of that is is that we're, we're, it's still a, a race against a dying planet. The planet itself is geologically dead, um, uh, and that's because it's, uh, it no longer has a warm core. A warm core is necessary because it's actually it's what gives us a magnetosphere here on Earth. Without the magnetosphere... Uh, we will become geologically dead like Mars. So, so it's just a rock, essentially. It's a it's a big rock in space. It's yeah, basically that's what it is. And, and people always ask me, why is it geologically dead? Well, it's smaller than Earth. And the compare a good analogy is is if you have a large potato and a small potato, and you put them in a microwave and you take them out. Uh, Mars is a small potato. It's going to cool a lot quicker than the larger planet like Earth. So Mars is already cooled off. It's, it's lost its warm core. Uh, it's geologically dead, and thus the chain reaction begins of of a, of a planet losing its atmosphere, uh, losing its pressure, uh, becoming exposed to solar winds and radiation. So it's it sounds like you're saying it's beyond the point of no return. It's probably beyond the point of no return, and. And uh, most of the research I've done, I think Mars will be the pit stop for something further, perhaps the, the moons of uh, of Jupiter, like Europa, um, potentially lots of water there. And, and as you know, the mission to Europa just got approved. So hopefully in about 11, 15 years, we'll finally reach that, that moon. But eventually, uh, I, I think people, it is possible, it is possible, and there's a lot of research and a lot of papers have written on terraforming Mars, but the energy requirements involved um, and the time necessary, literally, it'll literally take thousands of years. It's, it's not like the movie uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was in with, they terraformed it in within 20 minutes. Oh, but that's, a, that's based on, that's, is, is that taking into account Moore's law? Yeah, exactly. It's, you, got, you, we're fi- you just said it, we're, we're, we're fighting against something that, that's, Geologically dead. I don't think we'll have the energy resources to uh, to terraform a planet where we can use that same amount of, of energy to perhaps, in my opinion, is it build interstellar or intergalactic spacecraft and build generation ships, generational ships. And I think that's I think that will probably be the only way for a human species to survive in the long term. Right. So then, why Mars? It's it, because it's an intermediate measure. I think it's not just more. It's it's basically the next step in exploration. As as humans, uh, we are explorers, and the red red Mars is the next stop. And that's basically you know it, it, it involves everything from politics to science to you know uh, human endeavors. So you put all those things involved. We you know we don't want to go to the moon. We've been there already. Um, Jupiter is way too far for right now for humans to to actually even contemplate that trip but mars is the next step for for human for and i like to use the word exploration quote-unquote exploration um but as i stressed earlier i don't think we can survive there for too long uh, anything 
any human ha- anything over there would have to be artificial. We have to live in habitats, perhaps underground. Um, there's some research now in living in ancient lava tubes uh, or caverns where we can be protected by radiation. But that's basically it, guys. It's it's where we're we're still going to live in, in what they call life in a can. Um, you know, the excursions outdoors have to be limited. Um, replenishment is going to be very important. Uh, could so we could that- we build habitats on the moon where we could grow food? In fact, there's a um, there's a movie out now um, about yeah. about this very thing. Mars and, and an astronaut lands there. They he's been written off for, for dead. He shows up on the radar, and he's yeah. he's got a greenhouse going and and, and so forth. Yeah, hydroponics are, are are possible. You know, the space station does them, um, and they're relatively easy. You know. At the museum and industry where I work at, we have one where the USF built one for a potential uh, mission to Mars. It's pretty neat. It is, they're easy to build, um, very self-sufficient. And so, yeah, that, that we would have to. We would have to build and grow our own food. Uh, we, we would have to extract the oxygen and water from the atmosphere or the regolith because launching spacecraft and rockets back and forth are, are, are very expensive. How long does the so, trip take you know, uh, using good old rocket fuel? How long does that trip to Mars take? Six months? It takes about six six months, uh, you know, depending on, the, on how the, the planets are aligned. Um, there is talk about new technology to perhaps you can get it in about three to four months, but that's still on paper. Orion, um, the Orion mission is, 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 they mentioned six to eight months, depending on the payload, but, but it's about six to eight months to get there. Um, a minimum stay of about a year and a half because the planets will have to be aligned again in another six journey, another six months return. So you're looking about almost three years for a round trip mission. Um, the human body, though, is the human body uh, designed to take? Uh, it's not. It's not. What it's happens not. to the human um, body? What's going to happen to a human body, even one that's in great, even if someone is in top physical condition? What's going to happen? You know, three months or six months out. Six months back. Well, basically, and... basically, the body just starts to degrade. There's, um, you know, one of the, the most important and uh, things that we have to worry about on a mission to Mars is radiation. And when, Curi- the, when Curiosity was en route to, to Mars a few years ago, it detected and recorded um, within the six months enough radiation that it actually exceeded the life, the, uh, the uh, career of a of an as- of an astro astronaut twenty years, so we need to figure out how to protect the astronauts uh, heading there. And there's a lot of ways uh, the spacecraft could be built. It could be surrounded by a magnetic field, um, perhaps water tanks, which which are do pretty well in, in absorbing radiation. But I think that in a micro microgravity environment, the body really begins to deteriorate. Um, First one is the musculoskeletal system. The body is here on Earth. We have gravity. We're walking. We build muscle. In space, that does not happen. So the body basically uh, degrades. It's called atrophy. And the muscles degrade. The bones begin to get thinner. They, uh, they frizzle out. Lack of vitamin D. Uh, cataracts are very, very important. The Apollo astronauts within hours... Of, of being on the moon, complained of painful cataracts, um, flashes of light. One of them explained it was like somebody punching them in the face constantly. That's because the radiation was being disposed into the cataracts. Um, and so you're going to age, a too. person would age rapidly. 
It would it would Especially knock off with, decades off of their life, I'm guessing. Yeah, and I, I think one of the most critical components of long-term space travel is something called we call the orthostatic intolerance. And basically, it's almost like you, you, when you and I sleep for too long, right, we, we could barely get out of bed, right, uh, because the muscles basically began to waste away. Right. So imagine being in the zero gravity, excuse me, microgravity for six to eight months. Um, you're not just going to pop up, pop open the hatch and expect to walk. You, you see the astronauts come back to Earth after just a few months in space from the space station, and they're being carried out, right? They're on wheelchairs um, because they cannot walk when they, when they come back to normal gravity. So a long-term mission to, to Mars, uh, they're going to have difficulties. They're not just going to pop open the hatch and start researching. They'll well, it, take about... It's, it sounds... Their bodies are acclimated. It sounds, it sounds like, you know, the odds are just stacked against us. I mean, it doesn't sound like, uh, it's certainly not a picnic. I mean, I don't know. There was a lot of no, romantic... Ro- don't, don't get me wrong. It could be done. There's a lot of prevention strategies uh, that will be taking. You know, they will be doing exercises, uh, taking uh, supplements and things like that. But nevertheless, you know, the, the six months, eight months there, it, it will have... We're still learning a lot about humans in uh, zero gravity, and everything begins to shrink. The okay. heart begins to shrink. All right, uh, we the, uh, the, the, okay. Let me yeah. just uh, jump in here, uh, uh, Antonio. Yeah, We're sure. coming into a, a break here. We'll come back and continue to discuss the mission to Mars with Professor Antonio Paris right here on the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. All right, welcome back. And the website is strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca or strangeplanet.tv. Either of those will get you there. Antonio Paris uh, is with us, Professor of Astronomy at St. Petersburg College, Director of Planetarium and Space Programs at the Museum of Science and Industry in Tampa. And he's also uh, the, uh, the director or chief scientist, I should say, chief scientist at the Center for Planetary Science. Um, all right, so, you know, I've got to be honest, you're not painting a very rosy picture. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I would certainly, I mean, there was a lot of uh, people, sign, you know, volunteering, and want, they wanted to be yeah. the pioneers that were going to land on Mars. And uh, boy, oh boy, I tell you, uh, after listening to... I know, I mean, I would not sign yeah. up for that. I would not want to pull the short straw on that assignment. It sounds like hell, quite frankly. It sounds like hell. <laughs> this, is, this is what I tell everyone. Um, and for the listeners right here, I want you to go outside. Uh, I want you to go, go to your car, tint the windows, and I want you to sit in your car without getting out for eight months. Um, if you can do that, if you can sit in your car with tinted windows for eight months without getting out, you are a prime uh, a candidate for, for the uh, Mars mission. So you think the first habitats are going to be that small? Um, they will have to. I mean, uh, you know, uh, a, an ideal mission to Mars would be to send, uh, right, unmanned, drop the pods, and um, eventually when, when the first colony arrives, there's something to, for them to live in. Um, but eventually it's going to be a, a slightly larger Apollo mission, the, the, the habitat. The spacecraft becomes the uh, the uh, the habitat at the end. Um, it the biggest concern and the biggest issue is, uh, unfortunately, is money. It takes billions and billions and billions of dollars to launch a spacecraft into orbit uh, and send it to Mars. Um, that's that's the biggest drawback. If money was not a concern, there'd be rockets launching every hour, right, to Mars. Um, 
that's the biggest concern. It's, it's, a, it's a big issue when it comes to money and then pick, selecting the right people from a physiological and psychological perspective, right? Uh, the, one thing we didn't mention is, is the psychology of being uh, in a tin can uh, for three years. Uh, that's going to have a toll on people. We, we've seen sailors and submarines go crazy. We've seen uh, explorers up in the Arctic spending years alone go crazy. Um, so a, a psychological screening what, you know, for a mission to Mars is also uh, another big step. Uh, now, would how many would you send up the first time? I think uh, Orion's shooting for four to six. They really haven't decided. Um, okay, and then would they be uh, separated in their individual pods, or would they be able to interact? I, I think they would not be in the individual pods. I think it would be one large habitat um, that was probably probably built there, kind of like Legos, little by little. Okay. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure what's happening with your with your phone, Professor Paris, but I keep hearing a, a sounds like you're pushing a, a a button and it keeps cutting out. I'm not sure what's happening. How about now? Is this better? So far, we'll see. Okay. Okay. So, so the, um, I the, think I think I think an inflatable habitats. They're working on inflatable habitats where um, think of them like like big inflatable domes that that are can be protected by micrometeorites um, and some radiation exposure will probably be our best bet. Um, they're easy to stow, and once you get there, you can inflate these uh, habitats, and that, that's probably the way to go. Okay, so uh, now I'm feeling a little better. Now, it sounds like for the first four or six people, this Orion project, mm-hmm. it's going to be tough for them. But the, the ones that come after uh, that will have a much larger habitat, uh, it's going to yeah. get easier each time we go up. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's, that's the intent. The intent is, is uh, you know... E- for each individual mission, it's kind of like the the International Space Station. It's built um, uh, per launch, per payload. So it gets larger and larger and larger. Um, and as it gets larger, then uh, it's you know you have more crew members to to man um, the habitats on Mars. I think initially it's going to be mostly scientists and doctors, engineers uh, before you see any uh, families and things like that. Um, that actually go there and and die. I think most initial astronauts will return. It, um, I know there's some private entities out there that want to do a, a one-way mission to Mars. Uh, that's a possibility. Uh, so you know, give us a, give us some them. time markers here. Uh, first of all, uh, if you know all hands on deck and we put the necessary resources yeah. into this, how soon could we get this first? Mission to manned mission to Mars, where they they start to lay down sort of the the, the building blocks. How, how NASA NASA NASA's hope NASA's uh, milestone right now is twenty thirty five. Twenty thirty five. The Orion mission is is off to Mars. Um, twenty thirty six. Uh, it's boots on the ground, and that's that's their vision, and that's kind of the the uh, the mile markers and the, that they set. Other companies out there like Mars One are, are a little earlier, 2025. Um, uh, you know, I like Mars One, but there's a lot of uh, speculation whether or not it's, it's actually feasible. Okay, so uh, we we're looking at 20, 20 years, 20 years outside. All right, let, we'll take another yeah, time that, out. We'll take another time, yeah, Professor that's about Paris. That's about appropriate. Okay, we'll talk about, uh, when we come back, we'll talk about, you know, what comes after 2025. How soon will we be sending populations up there? Will we have, you know, all the creature comforts up there? Swimming pools, uh, shopping malls, 
Uh, let's see. Where were this? Where all this is headed? Uh, Professor uh, Paris, my guest, as we continue to discuss a mission to Mars. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. All right. Uh, the website for Professor Paris is planetary-science.org. Planetary-science.org, and we've also linked up to that. Uh, if you go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the uh, the radio. Uh, page for the conspiracy show. Uh, all right, so uh, 2025, 2035, in that window somewhere, we'll have boots on the ground, as you described it, and they'll be building these little uh, tin cans initially. Uh, but then from there, we could have inflatable, inflatable uh, domes, and uh, I mean that really opens up, uh, you know, the possibility in terms of, yeah. you know, we could have essentially uh, hotels up there. We could have swimming pools, uh, greenhouses. It could be quite comfortable. <laughs> It could be, yeah. You know, given enough energy and and necessary resources, after a couple of hundred years, of you could have a, a potential decent-sized colony up there. Um, I think the biggest drawback, and I should have mentioned this earlier, is reproduction. Uh, radiation has a real toll on sperm and, egg, uh, and eggs, and um, basically NASA has concluded that six months in space basically killed and destroyed uh, the testes, you know, the sperm cells in the testes. So oh, boy. All right. Well, how, how are we going to get around that one? Well, we, you know, believe it or not, and this might sound a little weird, but the NASA astronauts that go to the space station, um, from what I understand, is that they actually have their sperm cells uh, frozen so that when they return back to Earth, and that's not a conspiracy, that's actually true, true science. Right. Okay. So if they come back to Earth, um, they do have a way of reproducing um, artificially. Yeah, but here uh, on Earth, what about producing on the red planet? We don't know. We haven't, we haven't done the science. We, we tried to do the science with rats, and, and it's been inconclusive or, or failed experiments. But it's, uh, you know, eight weeks. The science shows that after eight weeks in, in uh, microgravity, uh, the testes or the eggs on the females begin to get damaged by radiation. So that's that's an issue. That's an issue. If if we're going to survive as a species, how are we going to reproduce? Um, and we just there is no answer to that right now. Uh, it, it sounds like you know, and I'm coming. Th- I, th- I put everything through my my faith filter and so forth. But uh, excuse yeah. me, I know you're a man of science, but it sounds to me like I mean, we uh, the big man in the sky just does not want us <laughs> out there spreading our seed. That's a possibility. We're, we're humans. We're, we're our this is our home planet, our species. Um, it, it could be that nature has selected us to to be constrained to this planet. Um, all right. Well, let's assume you know, that we we find. Uh, yeah. we, let's assume we find a way around that. Um, yeah. Some sort of shielding mechanism or so forth. So you're saying that it it would take a couple of hundred years before we could have a viable uh, population up there. Now, uh, yeah. What are we talking about? A thousand, two thousand? I'd maybe maybe a thousand or two. It all depends on are we there commercially, which probably would be faster if the commercial space industry. Um, figures out a way to make a profit and why we're there, they would do it a lot faster than the government. But easily, yes. Okay, let's, let's, let's take this back. If we launch a crew of six, which seems about a right payload, once, twice a year, so we've got, what's that, 12 
uh, 12 times 10, that's 120. So, yeah, in about 100, 100 years, you can easily get 1,000 people up there. Wow. That's a long haul, isn't it? <laughs> I in mean, migration, it's not, it's not like we're going – it's not like we're packing up in our apartment and moving from – Tampa to uh, Miami. It is, no, it is not. It is, it danger, is not. It's a dangerous trip. Um, there will be failures along the way. If you if you saw this year alone, would we lose about three or four launches? Right. Yes. SpaceX, uh, Orbital Sciences, all lost to spacecraft. So there will be failures along the way, um, and we learn from those failures. Hopefully, there are no human casualties on the way to Mars, but it's going to be slow. It's going to be really slow, and I think for you and I. Um, we'll still be around 2035 when the first humans uh, colonize Mars and return safely, hopefully. But isn't this but, all uh, assuming that there isn't some black swan uh, event? I'm not talking about a, uh, 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 an extinction event. I'm talking about some yeah. technological development. I had a well, I was hosting Coast recently, and I had a, a guest on who said that um, you know warp speed. We know. We know how to do it now. We just we need to locate. We need to find a way to to tap into the uh, essentially the antimatter that's all around us. Um, but he he said that warp speed could be within our grasp in the next one hundred years. Yeah, I saw that article too. It's totally possible. Um, it's it's all about money. Who has the five hundred million dollars to launch uh, uh, an endeavor like that to build build that? Um, there are a lot of different types of rocket propulsions on on the books, different ones that we can reach even uh, um, fairly close to the speed of light if, if it's long-term acceleration. But it's it's about building something that's feasible and quick, you know, and we, we just don't have the technology right now um, to build something. People, what? you know, and, and the analogy is, like, you know, I, People, I always use this analogy. It's like Christopher Columbus, you know, not building the wooden ships because he's going to wait on airplanes before he, you know, to go to America. That's not really possible. Right. He's going to go no matter what. Right. So we've got basically we got is dingy little ships, sails going to Mars, and eventually we'll get better technology. We'll get better. Uh, and and uh, what about these intergenerational uh, ships? You're talking about having uh, um, people in space for yeah. for generations. So it could be a mm-hmm. hundred years. Um, yep. it, and this would be uh, the idea, of course, is going to to, to distant stars or or yeah, it, eventually we'll have to find a habitable planet. And a habitable planet means something that's comparable to Earth. Um, we are. Slowly starting to learn that there are lots of habitable, not habitable planets, but a lot of extrasolar planets in the solar in the universe, and we just need a habitable planet that's relatively close, a couple of light years away, and it'll be generation ships that'll get there thousands of years later. Um, how do we do that? Could it be frozen embryos uh, that eventually awaken, and robots will, will be the parents, or the generation ships where it's the great 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 grandkids that eventually reach the final destination. Um, cryogenics, could we put uh, a population to sleep and eventually wake them up as we get there? Those are all possibilities, but the bigger picture is eventually, if we're going to survive, we have to find a habitable planet to actually survive on. And Mars, at, at this point, is not, is not really the ticket. 
Boy, there are just there are no shortcuts here. There's no magic wand. Uh, this is hard sledding ahead of us, isn't it? <laughs> I I I I think if you look at technology, how you know catapulted in just the last fifteen twenty years. I think I think uh, about one hundred twenty, maybe one hundred two hundred years from now, um, that'll be a possibility. We'll have better engines. Um, it'll be a point where Mars is just a you know it's it's a trip down the road, maybe a month or two, and perhaps thousands of years from now, if we haven't killed ourselves off in a war or something, um, we'll, we'll, we'll have some really cool technology, better engines, that'll get this really, really a lot faster, um, even past uh, beyond the solar system. All right. Uh, we have about, uh, I don't know, four and a half minutes uh, left, and yeah. I, I, um, I couldn't let you go without talking about, I mean, you have a very interesting background. Uh, I mentioned the Medal of Valor for your your intelligence work in Iraq, and of course we have the Center for Planetary Science. Uh, but you are also you are involved in this documentary on the Skinwalker Ranch out in uh, is that Ballard, Utah, I believe. Tell me about yeah, that. that. How did you become involved in that? Yeah, so um, I'm, I, I like to study foes uh, um, on a part time basis. It used to be a really almost a full time basis since I got a real job that pays the bills. So one of my one of my cases was from various people who witnesses who said, Okay, you gotta come out to Skinwalker Ranch and so my team and I um went out there uh and we investigated the ranch for a couple of nights and it was a really good experience. We did see some strange stuff, a couple of strange orbs, a couple of strange uh shadows here and there. Um, unusual movement on the ranch, but uh, it was a shotgun investigation, a drive-by, and I hope to go back. Um, I couldn't really make any conclusive evidence of what that orb was, of what the strange shadows were, but I, I was left to go back and investigate it. It's a very eerie place. Um, I, w- I We interviewed a lot of people, dozens of witnesses out there, including the sheriff, state police, the, the, the tribal police. And what's interesting is that for every person we asked, uh, one would say, oh, my God, there's been crazy, strange activity, UFO, paranormal, you name it. And then you can interview the person right next door. And they would say, I haven't seen anything, and they've been there for 20, 35 years. So the, the whole, if, I, if I've got one minute left, the, the, uh, I guess the, the theory is that Skinwalker Ranch is a portal. It's a portal for something, uh, for strange activity. Um, and this this thing they call this 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 entity can manifest itself to whatever it wants. It can manifest itself to an alien, uh, a werewolf, um, a skinwalker, uh, black triangles, ghosts, demons, um, and that that's why we went to go investigate is to see what is this thing, why wasn't it there? The big conspiracy is that, and this is what your audience is going to like, is that the ranch is owned by Bigelow. And yes, uh, yes. big conspiracy guy, and the the guards. There's actually guards there. Uh, it's a company called URS. Uh, URS used to be EG and G. It's the same company that uh, that protects Area 51. So currently, so it's currently the same. And he's very big into private space exploration as well. Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's big into that as well. So is he not building? A big old, isn't he building that some of these habitats that he thinks could be used on Mars? He's building one for orbit. 
for for orbital orbital ah, okay. uh, habitation hotels in space. All right. But the same technology um, is also being uh, studied for habitats, not just on on uh, Mars, but also on the Moon. Okay. So sorry to interrupt, but so back to the ranch. So yeah, Bigelow yeah. owning this ranch uh, and the mm-hmm. security involved in the sec- the uh, the camo guys, right? The camouflage guys. Yeah. Area so 51. apparently, the, the 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 conspiracy is that Bigelow is. Is trying to exploit the the uh, this portal that's there for perhaps um, uh, wormhole travel. We you know figure out if, if if there is a portal there. First off, um, can it be used for other purposes, including uh, space travel? So that that's the theory. Um, at least that's uh, one of the theories. It's an. I mean, I mentioned your resume being kind of a, a mixed bag. Uh, Mm-hmm. What are your your colleagues? I mean, it's a pretty conservative group, is it not? When we're talking about astrophysicists, uh, what do they yeah, make so of your your extracurricular activities? They uh, they love it. In fact, most scientists I know are all closet uh, UFO lovers and things like that. My, my oh, is that right? Is a little That's interesting. I didn't oh, know that. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, my story's a little different. You know, here in the military, I was injured, unfortunately, so um, had to get out of the military and. Went to college to study uh, astrophysics, and that's so two careers. But nevertheless, it's still a hobby. Um, as long as I, when it comes to science, I stick to the scientific process, and when it comes to pseudoscience, I stick to pseudoscience. I don't try to mix the two. I can use my background skills uh, to study UFO phenomena, uh, but I have to be careful in not crossing that line. And most people understand that. So I'm, I'm still being published. I'm still writing books um, because. The two never actually, you know, cross waters. Well, I am uh, very pleased that we finally met uh, Professor Paris, and I hope you'll come back again and again. Thank you for this. Okay. All right, buddy. Thanks for everything. Thank you. And the website is planetary-science.org. There he goes, Professor Antonio Paris from the Center for Planetary Science, the next generation of space explorers. All right, uh, once again, the website, strangeplanet.ca or strangeplanet.tv. Everything's there under one roof. Please check it out. Uh, The website, uh, strangeplanet.ca. And uh, follow me on Twitter. Say hi, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Alrighty then, thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your camper, RV, your taxi, your cabin in the woods. A special hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, here in Toronto, AM 740 and FM 96.7. Or perhaps you're listening in on the Zoomer Radio app, which I have to tell you, it's really cool. It has a real retro feel to it. It looks like... Uh, an old transistor radio, um, and it's a free download. Uh, or maybe you're listening in on the Conspiracy Show app, which is pretty cool too, I must say. Uh, and that's a free download. Uh, online, you might be listening at uh, zoomerradio.ca, the podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, TalkZone.com. Then, of course, there are the affiliates down in the U.S., the growing list of affiliates. So however and wherever you're listening, thank you for your fine company. Uh, Diane Tessman, the former state section director for Florida MUFON, uh, who's also a contactee and published author, is standing by. We'll get to her very shortly. 
Uh, incidentally, we are running an HOA or Hangout on Air again. And Diane Tessman, uh, she's not on the webcam, but uh, if you, you, you'll be able to hear her uh, and see me uh, in studio. Albert, El, Albert Vinzel, of course, is running uh, the uh, HOA, and he'll be running a slideshow on the HOA with various images related to the things Diane and I uh, talk about. Just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, and uh, go to the top of the feed, look for the tweet with the HOA link in it, click on it, and voila, you're in. Uh, season four of The Conspiracy Show, the TV program, fast approaching, brand new episodes including GMOs, fluoride, Ouija boards, JFK, and more. Uh, that's coming soon again across Canada on Vision TV. So just check your local listings to find out which channel Vision is on in your area. Uh, let me mention next week on the uh, program, Carl Gallops uh, will be back with us. He joined us briefly a couple of weeks ago, uh, but he's going to be on once again to talk end times, the persecution of the church, and uh, much more. And Carl uh, is, of course, the author of Final Warning, Understanding the Trumpet Day's Rev- Revelation. He'll be joining me on stage along with L.A. Marzuli, author of the Nephilim Trilogy, uh, L.A. is also quite a, a filmmaker. And um, so Carl and L.A. Marzulli will be on uh, the stage with me for an event called As in the Days of Noah. This is a special live event. It's happening Wednesday, November the 4th at the University of Toronto's Oise Auditorium, right on Bloor Street. So for more information, go to strangeplanet.ca. Click on the live events page strangeplanet.ca. Click on the live events page. Uh, All the info is there. Tickets on sale now through Conspiracy Culture. Just give our good friends Patrick and Kadena a call at 416-916-1696. 416-916-1696. As in the days of Noah. All right. uh, Last week, I think it was last week, wasn't it, Albert? We had Nick Redfern on. Was that last week? Yes. Uh, and he was uh, here, and he talked about his new book, uh, Bloodline of the Gods, which is really an interesting idea. Uh, I mean, this is an idea that's been kicked around for quite a while, but he sort of uh, picked up on it and expounded on it. And um, this has to do with the fact that a fairly small percentage of the world's population, uh, something like 10%, I think, are missing the RH protein marker in their blood. In other words, they're RH negative. Uh, So if we humans, in fact, evolved from the rhesus monkey, as Darwin would have us believe, and I'm not uh, certainly convinced of that, but uh, if that's the case, then we should all have, one would think, all of us inhabitants, we should all have the RH marker. But we don't. What about that other 10 to 15% that are RH negative? So then this theory is that they may contain some evidence of some sort of genetic manipulation on the part of the ancient gods who were extraterrestrials. Uh, And uh, this is interesting because there seems to be a connection, I'm told, with the Rh-negative blood type and people who claim to have been abducted by aliens. Like they're coming back to check on this ongoing experiment. They're only interested in the Rh-negative. Um... So I want to put that question to my next guest, and I, mind you, I have a lot more questions, but that's certainly one of them. And I'm, I'm so pleased uh, she's here. Diane Tessman has counseled abductees and uh, contactees for over 30 years. She draws on her own experiences in childhood as well as the ongoing contact throughout her life. Uh, Tibus, or Tibus, 
uh, whom she encountered in her childhood experiences. And Diane uh, shares consciousness and uh, – Rather, Tibbis and Diane share a consciousness, uh, and so she can offer unique help to star seeds and other contactees. Over the years, thousands of people have turned to Tibus for guidance. Diane's encounters totally changed her life, and she has no regrets, she says. She has physical evidence from those encounters, which is undeniable. The certainty that we are not alone has motivated Diane for many years. While teaching school for 11 years, Diane was state section director for Florida MUFON in the late 1970s and also a field investigator for the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, APRO. In 1980, Diane underwent hypnotic regression with Dr. Leo Sprinkle and remembered one of several childhood encounters with a being named Tybus. One encounter was aboard what appeared to be a starship. Another encounter was in a cabin on Eagle Lake, Ontario. Hmm. A membrane was taken from Diane on one of those encounters. Diane's teaching experience lasted five years, first grade in the U.S. Virgin Islands, St. Thomas, and six years English as a second language, and first grade in St. Petersburg, Florida. After moving to California, Diane began a monthly newsletter called the Star Network Heartline. This monthly newsletter is still thriving and has many of the original subscribers. In 1990, Diane began the Change Times Quarterly while living in Amsterdam. Both of these newsletters are available in uh, e-form from her website, uh, which I've linked up to at uh, strangeplanet.ca. We've, uh, uh, yes, we've linked up there. Just go to the uh, radio page for The Conspiracy Show, and it's on the homepage. Uh, anyway, that's quite uh, an impressive resume. Let's uh, get Diane Tessman in here. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, Diane? Oh, I'm fine, and I'm pleased to be here. Well, thank you. Or there. <laughs> here, there, <laughs> and everywhere. Yes, indeed. All right, let me uh, let me go back to uh, last week's conversation with Nick Redfern. Do you know Nick, by the way? Uh, yes, I know. I don't know him personally. I've been aware of him for many years, yeah. All right, this whole RH negative uh, marker in 10 to 15 percent, uh, perhaps evidence of some genetic uh, manipulation from extraterrestrials and uh, first of all let me ask you is there because you are a, a contactee or a, an abductee you've you've counseled many of them is okay. there a, any connection between this RH negative marker and contactees and abductees there seems to be um, throughout the years various interesting things that might be unique with people that have had encounters um, but none of them I, can go right across the board and, so that we can say, oh, that's it. Um, with the RH negative, I'm not. I've looked into other things about myself, um, which sound kind of conceited, and I don't mean them that way, but um, I was born to two older parents in their 40s, and Mom had been told uh, she couldn't <clears throat> conceive um, another child. She had had uh, my brother many years earlier, 10 years earlier. Um, she had uh, ovarian cyst surgery, and the doctors told her, well, you probably won't have another child. And uh, I came along 10 months later. Okay, those things, wonderful things happen like that. Um, I've looked into the fact that uh, uh, quite a few uh, abductees or contactees um, I've known are left-handed and red-haired. <laughs> um, hmm. And I've seen, I know Chris Holly looked into <clears throat> the fact that 
um, perhaps Irish Americans were abducted, and I actually debated that with Chris because um, I I don't like to say that one group is sort of special um, when we really don't know <clears throat> because uh, there's many abductions and experiences, for instance, in South America, and those people are darker for the most part. So it, it's a really tricky area. Um, I, I know that I'm missing a membrane from my encounter. There's no other explanation uh, from my main, what I call my main encounter that I remembered a bit consciously throughout my entire life, but I finally went to Dr. Sprinkle in 1980 to be regressed for the details, and I got a lot of details. Um, All right, so, well, let's, let's delve into that. Diane Tessman with us, uh, who is a, uh, has counseled abductees and contactees, and she is, uh, would you classify yourself as an abductee or a contactee? Well, I, I guess an abductee, but I call it an encounter because it was positive to me, although it must have had some scary aspects, but I remember no fear. <laughs> So I guess uh, experiencer is the new term. All right. So, okay, um, so take us back to take us back to nine. Than, uh, contact, it's not just spiritual; it sure. was physical. All right. Take us back to 1980, and you went to see. Uh, first of all, uh, tell us a little bit about who is Dr. R. Leo Sprinkle. He's really well regarded uh, in ufology. He's. Uh, currently on the board of directors for uh, Edgar Mitchell's group Free, uh, which is the foundation for research into extraterrestrial encounters, and I'll be working with them as well. Um, so I'm really thrilled about that. Um, it's just getting off the ground. There was an earlier Free, but it's being reborn, more or less, and okay. it's going to be Edgar Mitchell's, have his name on it now, and uh, he's going to be really involved in it. What were the circumstances that led you to finally undergo this hypnotic regression with Dr. Sprinkle in 1980, 35 years ago? Yeah. Uh, yes, I'm no spring chicken. <laughs> this, my my uh, abductions were actually in the golden age of UFO inductions in the 50s, 1952. I'm 68, <clears throat> and I'm sounding like it with a frog in my throat. Um, so uh, I was... I went on into life. I taught school in my uh, youth, in my twenties, and uh, but I always and I was state section director for MUFON and uh, with APRO. But I always knew it was a personal thing with me, um, something very soulful and deep, and it really gnawed at me. So I wrote to Dr. Sprinkle and flew out to Wyoming. He was professor at University of Wyoming. He gave me a battery of psychological tests and discovered I'm not nuts and invited <laughs> me to be regressed. All right, listen, I'm going to jump in right here. Uh, Diane, excuse the intrusion, but we, uh, we have to take a break. We'll do just that, come back and continue to discuss uh, your regression and uh, what was discovered uh, during that regression. Diane Tessman is with us, and we are talking about her abduction case, her experience the former state section director of Florida MUFON is here with me on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. We are back with Diane Tessman. She has counseled abductees and contactees for over 30 years, and she's telling us about the, under, the, uh, the hypnotic regression she underwent 
uh, with Dr. Leo Sprinkle uh, back in 1980. So you made the trip out to uh, Wyoming. Yes. And, and he, um, you, went under, went, you underwent oh. a battery of tests. And so he determined that you were not, in your words, nuts. <laughs> nuts, yes, that was a relief. Um, let me just tell you uh, what motivated me. Uh, the final thing that motivated me to go to Dr. Sprinkle was this missing membrane. Um, it's, you know, along the line of symmetry of your upper lip, uh, there's a membrane that connects your inside of your lip with your gums. Right. Well, uh, mine's missing. And it took me a while to figure out that it was missing because you don't miss what you don't have. Um, I had seen, since the time I started uh, playing around with makeup, about age nine, I had noticed a slight scar on the outside, which a, uh, I went to a plastic surgeon around 1980 as well just to ask him, and he said it looked like a laser scar. But that was before I discovered the inside of the, was actually what was done, and the membrane's just totally gone. So I, my parents were very doting parents, very involved, so I wasn't running around losing membranes that they didn't know about. And I asked if perhaps I had a slight birth defect or maybe a dentist did it because um, I, it was going to bother the, my, te- my adult teeth when they came in. N- they said, no, nothing like they didn't know. And uh, uh, Mom would have been happy to sort of burst my UFO balloon because she didn't believe in any of that crap. So, right, right. Um, but they were truly puzzled by it. So, um, you know, I was asking myself, well, what can you use a membrane for? Well, of course, cloning. Um, and the mouth is the best nourished part of the body, so it would be the tissue there would be good for cloning. But um, there are several books on UFO healings by uh, Preston Dennett, and so I started to wonder if maybe I was somehow saved by my, by my membrane. Um, when I was four, which is when these encounters happened, I was really thin, and I had tonsillitis, strep throat several times, had a lot of heavy nosebleeds. So today, you would take your child to be, treat, uh, to be tested for childhood leukemia with those, that's the, uh, the signals to, for that, but I was never tested. Well, okay, then switch forward to 2015, um, there's a new procedure that cancer doctors use. They take a tissue sample and re-engineer it. Uh, for improved antibodies and put it back in the patient's body. This is used fairly uh, more and more these days. And this has been successfully tried with cases of childhood leukemia, I have read. So, of course, advanced beings would probably know of this method. And I have no proof that this good reason was, was why the membrane was taken. But I do know that by age five, I was full of energy and was very healthy, and I became a gymnast and took ballet and, you know, was just full of energy. So for myself personally, I do pretty much believe that perhaps it was taken to help me. Now, maybe they kept it for <laughs> for cloning, too. But anyway, that is the catalyst that took me to Dr. Sprinkle. And so, um, okay, now your memories of of an abduction uh, at age four. Yeah. Was that coming to you in like flashes uh, or would, did that come out during the regression? 
I always had conscious memories of it, but only very, like, snapshots of it. And what I remembered was this guide, this being, um, who was very human-like, but not quite human. We sat in this main encounter. I remembered sitting maybe a foot away from him. He had amber, deep amber-colored eyes that were almost translucent that you would not, they were just different from any human I'd ever seen. But other than that, he was human. Um, he told me they were, he was from the future, my future. Um, and you can believe that or not. Um, uh, time travel, anyway, we can get into that later. It might be more possible than we've been led to believe. But uh, that was what I remembered, was sitting looking at this. Um, he had rather like Travis Walton's Golden Humans because there was a golden effect because his skin was fairly dark, sort of olive-colored and sort of reddish tawny hair. So everything about him was kind of amber. Hmm. <laughs> um, and that's what I remembered. But under regression, I remembered things like the two smaller beings that, took me in something like what I called the Tilt-A-Whirl because a carnival had just been to our small Iowa town, and I loved the Tilt-A-Whirl. And then there I was in this probably scout craft, I guess you'd call it, and it was pretty cramped and kind of uh, shaped like a Tilt-A-Whirl car. And they were not human. At least one was a, a very small humanoid. The other gave me an insect-like impression, but I was never fearful of them. They never interacted with me. So things like that I remembered under regression. And when did the, 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 uh, those snapshot images, do you remember when you started to remember those prior to 1980? I mean. They were always with me from the time um, that I can remember, which is about age four. Um, maybe I can remember back to three I'm not sure. I think I had a one-man band at age three. But, uh, no, since the time that this would have happened, it, they've always been with me, those conscious okay. memories. All right. And then the, these, you started to connect some of the dots under the regression. Yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, and so do you, do you remember being actually t- taken aboard under the regression? Did you remember ta- being taken aboard this vessel? I don't remember going through an airlock to be taken aboard, but I was aboard a very big thing that was practically beyond my comprehension. Um, but it was this area where we, I think it was telepathy, but I'll say where we talked, me and this guide, um, was uh, uh, an earth-like bench and um, a, a few plants and across the corridor, there was a swirling pastel sort of hologram. I don't know if it was just decoration or if it was meant to calm me, um, because I was very calm throughout this. In fact, I felt that I was home. Um, I didn't even want to leave. <laughs> and I was also very worried about my guide, that he was giving me something that he would then be missing. Um, and this is where the shared consciousness comes in. Um, I don't call, uh, I've channeled for many years. I've written newsletters with messages from Tybus, but it's, channeling has never suited me. It 
it's better described as just kind of a shared consciousness. So Tybus is the name of this amber-eyed uh, yeah. human humanoid <laughs> yeah. that uh, uh-huh. you met. All right, and and when did the when did the shared consciousness? Uh, the, the, I guess could we call it telepathy? We can, sure. Okay, when uh-huh. did that start? Well, I assume it started then because um, I was always terribly from from there on. But see, I was four, so you don't really three. You're not really free on your own to go into nature, but. I was always extremely, from, from, let's say, four onward, extremely empathetic with animals and nature. And I had a, a comprehension for a, for a child that any contact with anything unknown, as, as Leonard Nimoy said, would be have enormous implications. I, I had a grasp on advanced life that wasn't known by most people. And so I was kind of a, an introverted, strange little kid, very, very smart, but uh, actually bullied because <laughs> I was just different. And I think that probably started quite a bit after these encounters. I'm not sure that would have happened um, if I had just gone on being the child of my parents, uh, both of whom were pretty well earth earth uh, bound. They were just kind of traditional people. Right. So did you mention, uh, did, did Tybus come up in conversation? With my parents? Correct. I, no, I, uh, my parents, my mom was bipolar, my dad was a nice alcoholic, so they were, <laughs> they were always a arguing. Nice, a nice alcoholic. They were alcoholic. college educated people, nice mm-hmm. individuals, mm-hmm. but they were so wrapped up in each other's problems that I was a very self-contained child, I maybe almost autistic, and I just went my way. I went outside um, as long as we lived on the farm where the contact had taken place or originated from. Um, so I never discussed it. I mean, Mom didn't even believe in ghosts. They were sort of poo-pooed <laughs> as being ignorant or, or right. something like that. So I did have uh, invisible presences um, after that, when I was outdoors, I called them the remembers, and um, they were just there, and I don't, they weren't even invisible playmates, they were just with me when I was outside, which was kind of weird. All right, so Tybus, um, what what sorts of things was he telling you uh, when you were four, five, six years old, and so forth? What sort of communications, what was the content of these communications? I guess I've always been, even then, I was being sort of educated in um, everything from, um, I don't know if I'd say astrophysics as far as the equations, but I've done a lot of um, writing throughout the years on on uh, theories of consciousness and uh, quantum theories, but minus the equations. I always state I'm certainly not a physicist. But I've done a lot of, been really nudged to do a lot of research on consciousness and uh, things like that, um, quantum physics. Did you keep a diary when you were young? Did you keep no, a record? No, I, I didn't, no. Hmm. Do you regret that? Um, no, not so much when I was young, but I've had a lot of weird things happen in my adulthood that I wished I had kept a diary of. When I was young, I think things were just so natural. I kind of feel like maybe I 
could phase in and out uh, without any uh, uh, division line between. So maybe I didn't feel a need to to write them down, but I've had a lot of uh, just weird little things happen that you tend to forget over the years. Did Tybus ever appear to you? Has he ever appeared to you again, or has it just been uh, through telepathy? There was one other time, and I don't know if it happened before or after this 1952 incident uh, encounter. Um, what I did find out, um, well, the other time was at the Canadian cabin. My parents uh, went up there for a brief vacation, like one day, to Eagle Lake, Ontario. And I don't know why they just left me in the cabin, but they did. And I remember this same being walking into the cabin with dark glasses on. Maybe the sun hurt his eyes. I don't know. I mean, maybe there was a, some sort of a, a difference with what he was used to. Um, but he had on a red checkered shirt and jeans. And I've talked with several people who feel they've had experience with future humans and it seems that they also saw somebody with a red checkered shirt and jeans, almost as if their computer spits out the the right uniform for uh nineteenth mm-hmm. you know, uh nineteen whatever, fifty two. Um but uh he came in the door, he put the dark glasses up on his head and he says, Diane, do you remember me? And I said, Yes. I was holding my little golden book. Um it, little golden books were a series of children's books. It happened to be the one on not fearing the unknown. It was called Poison the Attic. And I was holding that, and you know, I can see myself through his eyes on that conscious memory. I've always had this memory. I was looking at myself with long red braids, a little girl with um, seersucker shorts, and just a little top on. He said, "Um, are you afraid? And I said, no, because I knew him. And he was always very almost reticent or um uh wise but but hesitant um anyway and uh that's all i remember of that did but he i know it was the same right uh, same guy and in the first encounter or what you believe was the first encounter he mentioned that he was or he told you he was from your future he did did he yeah. ever affix a date Where, what time frame was he visiting from well, unfortunately, he didn't say, <laughs> but, um, you know, I've done a lot of research. I've written articles, and, uh, in fact, it's in my book, UFO Agenda on Time Travel. And I, I believe that, okay, we're coming up to the singularity in uh, Time Magazine, Guest 2045, somewhere in there, where, we, where computers will equal our intelligence. Right. And from then on, we either need to... Um, be on top of the computer, or they're going to be on top of us. Sure, Stephen Hawking has warned us about this. Yes, yes, it's a huge subject, and most people don't really deal with it or think about it. Um, So, okay, you figure, let's say we live through this and we use the computer, um, the artificial intelligence, which computers, nanobots will offer us for the positive. Um, So then there will be quantum computers as well, and they're just incredible. So eventually we're going to have a formula for time travel. When you think of how quickly we've come in technology sure. since 
even 2000. Yeah, Moore's Law. It's all about Moore's Law. Listen, uh, Diane, I have to take a time out. And okay, we'll come back all and right, we'll, uh, I'll hold it. <laughs> we'll continue to talk about time travel, Tybus, and... Um, the alien abduction phenomenon. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Thanks for hanging out. Diane Tessman is here. The website is earthchangepredictions.com. Earthchangepredictions.com. And um, we'll, we'll run down uh, some of the, uh, the 10 uh, predictions that have proved to be accurate that came to you via Tybus, I presume. Mm-hmm. All yeah. right. Um, let me, a, a couple of quick questions regarding time travel. Uh, and you can disabuse me of this notion because I, I may be totally out in left field. But one would um, th- presume that if you created a time travel device, let's say today, uh, in the future, you could only travel back as far as a time when you turned that, tri- that, that time travel machine on. Is that is right? That, right. So that would then suggest that time travel was created in the 1950s. Uh, right, okay, but I I don't think that a time travel device is probably what it is. Um, uh, I think if you could take quantum calculations or, or advanced computer calculations, and there was a way, you know, there was a film called um, Source Code okay. where... Um, they said the people who made the film said they actually checked with the military and they are, they are working on something similar um where i'm sure that the military isn't doing what the the film did but in the film a, a uh, dying com- uh, helicopter pilot was hooked up to a computer and was able to go to try and stop a terrorist um as a physical person, and yet he was hooked up back at the uh, laboratory. So I think there might be... uh, Quantum science is so crazy, and I don't aim to just give it as an excuse for every crazy idea, but I think there might be a way to drill down with uh, the help of quantum computers through time. I mean, we we figure ETs come through space, uh, through a huge vast amount of space and there's all sorts of explanations on how they might do that fairly quickly but we've got space solved when we deal with time travelers because we're all in the same space so the space you occupy at one point there are cavemen there and for them it's now and for you it's now and for the pioneers that came in between the settlers it's now so if you could drill down into time, I think it might be more of a matter of something other than the old-fashioned time machine that can't go back beyond the point where it was (laughs) invented or whatever, or also those old grandfather clauses where you can't go back into time because you might accidentally kill your grandfather, then you wouldn't exist. The paradox, I think those right. are almost uh, urban legends or sort of bugaboos about time travel. Right, right, the paradox. Yeah. All right. Well, Andrew Bashego, who's been on the program, uh, uh, Project Pegasus, I don't know if you followed his uh, career, but he would, I mean, he's talked about time travel at least going back to the early 1970s, so who, who knows? Um, 
Now, let's get to these predictions that came to you uh, th- through your communications with Tybus, correct? Yes, they're on my website. I don't have copies of the old predict. I do have some new predictions that I could make, but go, go ahead with the uh, ones on my website. Okay, well, here's one that's, that's quite interesting, uh, and that is, and this was mentioned in your book, The uh, Earth Changes Bible, uh, which was published about 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, this one obviously hasn't come to fruition, but you predicted the unraveling of the United States in the 21st century with political divisions becoming so poisonous as to cause some regions to take steps toward forming their own countries. Yes. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. <laughs> I'll say, well, we're, you could argue we're seeing the seeds of that. I know that in Colorado, for example, there is a... Um, an attempt, uh, I think someone's trying to put it on the ballot uh, for a referendum to, to split Colorado in half. And, of course, t- Texas and some yes. of these other red states are constantly agitating, you know, for states' rights and, and wanting to split from the union. So um, interesting. I mean, uh, who, who, who knows? What else can yeah, you tell we, us about that? we predicted super storms before they really took hold. And, and now there are certainly, it seems like more tornadoes, larger um, even the larger drought, just a larger um, earth climate problems than were around when we predicted them. But I always say about my predictions, and by my I mean Titus too, we don't really try to pull a rabbit out of the hat and say, oh, um, Neptune is going to be knocked out of orbit tomorrow, and um, you know it'll fly off into the cosmos. Ours are based in logic. I've never um, pretended to be a psychic exactly. Um, to me, it's logical that if uh, there's a problem in 1995 with uh, ocean pollution, that it's going to grow worse if we don't do something about it. So right, you did. You did predict the breakup of the Larsen Ice Shelf. Uh, yeah, that was predicted yeah. in 1984, and that happened when. Uh, it's, it's what fairly recently it totally broke up. I think. Okay. All right. We'll we'll uh, run some more through more of these uh, with Diane Tessman and her uh, telepathic communications with a time traveler named Tybus, and we'll uh, continue to discuss other aspects of the alien abduction contactee phenomenon. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. All right. We've got. Um, one more tilt here with uh, Diane Tessman, spiritual counselor. Uh, again, the website, earthchangepredictions.com. Um, okay, so let's talk about some of the uh, the other, the more recent predictions uh, that um, I guess they're, they're on the website. Uh, they're not on the website ah, yet. Okay. My webmaster is suffering from congestive heart failure. Oh, but dear. She's, she's going, she's still still kicking. Um, she's my lifelong friend for over 33 years, and we used to chase aliens together. She's an experiencer. So I haven't asked her to put these on the website. Um, she's real busy in this particular season with uh, Ren Fairs, Renaissance Fairs. So anyway, they're not on the website yet, but they need to be. Okay, so share a couple of those with us if you could. Okay, the prediction number one, the Pope, who everybody was so impressed with. He's the, I'm not a uh, huge Pope person, but I thought he 
was just amazing. Um, the Pope wishes to announce disclosure. He wishes to be the one to do it. And certainly he's in the best position because he's not political. He has reached something in us that is rather basic and loving that's kind of been trampled on by current society. His motivations are sincere within the paradigm of his Catholic faith. However, this puts Pope Francis in even larger danger. Pope Francis is a pope with huge historical significance. He has E.T. contact and guidance. The E.T.s realize they must take an individual at the level he or she is at. Pope Francis is more enlightened than any pope for a long time, and he can think outside the strict papal mindset and so is easily worked with. And is there a time frame for Pope Francis uh, uh, disclosing? Oh, you know, I always am so hopeful about disclosure, and I guess everybody else is too, and then it never quite comes about. There's that uh, Mars uh, conference with NASA tomorrow morning, um, possibly announcing, well, who knows? I don't think it's going to be announcing advanced alien life, uh, probably water of yes, some sort on Mars is my guess. Yes, I agree. I think it's going to be about water on Mars. But that's a huge, I mean, water is life as as we know it. Now, well, it's, an ing- it's a possible too, ingredient. It's an ingredient. That's not in our in our world. Mm-hmm. So. All right. So, uh, but, but, but uh, again, a time frame for the Pope? Uh, because he has indicated himself that he doesn't see himself as a long-term Pope. Well, his, his Vatican astronomy department is certainly open to E.T. existence and is, is, seems to be uh, guiding him in that direction. So I really feel that, and Titus does too, that a, a disclosure should happen what, within the next year? I really hope so. Maybe that's hope more than prediction. Uh, but, but Titus doesn't give you uh, time frames. No, Titus isn't good at exact dates, and that's both a pro and con, because so many uh, people that channel or, or psychic have given dates for various things. In fact, even as we speak, I believe the 28th and 29th were supposed to be a time for ascension, and we're we're still here, but we never predicted that. So um, people, a lot of uh, people choose specific dates, and nothing comes about. And uh, the same with the asteroid that was supposed to hit Earth on September 23rd. Titus said, no, it's not going to. So he's never said, yes, it's coming immediately. And it ha- but the the proof is it hasn't come, but, <laughs> so it's kind of a mind game, I guess. Well, yeah, because if I were a time traveler, uh, and let's say I was, let's say in 1954, I appeared to you, and I came from the future, I could mm-hmm. tell you with 100% certainty who the the, the Brooklyn Dodgers were going to win the World right. Series in 1955, and then the Yankees in 56, and then the Milwaukee Braves in 57. Uh, and then the right. Yankees again in 58, and the Dodgers again in 59, and on and on. I could be very precise. Why well, is, why is he being so coy? I believe a non-interference directive, and ah, maybe that okay. sounds like Star Trek, and I am the first to admit I adore original Star Trek. I'm with you on that. But I think there is a non-interference directive, and specific information can't be given, and there are many alternate timelines, and maybe you know that gets into being an excuse. 
but uh, it also seems to be solid quantum physics. So um, he contacted me as he was supposed to, and the shared consciousness happened, and I am not given knowledge of, you know, the next moment of the future. I don't pretend to, but I think I have some kind of contribution to our human species, I guess is is the best I can put it, to sort of nudge, nudge us forward as they are trying to do, whoever they is, um, to nudge us forward into the next step of evolution, which is a step in consciousness. So maybe we'll be homo cosmos instead of homo sapiens. I don't think sapiens is the end of it. Uh, now, does each contactee or experiencer have a sort of a, a guide or a handler? Does everyone have their own sort of individual Tybus, or does Tybus handle other contactees? And have you, uh, in your experience in counseling contactees, ever encountered uh, another contactee who also identified Tybus as their handler? No, I haven't, and that's kind of weird. Um, I do think many contactees are given a, a star guardian is sort of a an emotional way to put it or a spiritual way to put it, but not every one. Um, it seems to vary from my experience. Um, some uh, just identify immediately and say, oh, my star guardian has brilliant blue eyes instead of golden eyes. And they, But then others are, are, don't have that connection at all, and yet they were abducted. Uh, what about the time traveler aspect? Have other contactees uh, made it known to you that their guide had uh, proclaimed him or herself to be a time traveler? Uh, yes. Um, a number have felt that future humans feels like home to them, perhaps more than other people that feel that some sort of rather exotic of course, the the uh, small fetuses could well be us from maybe a million years in the future, given a bit of nuclear contamination and and uh, time. We seem to be going that direction rather than the hairy ape direction. So even the small fetus aliens, in fact, I believe there's uh, some... Uh, I don't think it's fact, but rumor that the small um, one of the uh, a Roswell or a J Rod alien from all of that stuff back in the fifties murmured as he died. He said, "I am human." <laughs> so, oh, I, I'm not familiar with that story, and I'm not familiar with the small fetus alien. Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, that? Well, I guess I'm talking about the the small grays. When ah, you okay. think of it, they look like a fetus. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's what. Uh, yeah. All right, that's fascinating. So, the uh, I mean, the alien agenda, your your um, your book. I mean, it's such a it's such a riddle wrapped in a in a mystery. I mean, there are so many different facets. I mean, we could talk about. Uh, I mean, your your very positive experience, where perhaps they saved you from leukemia, but then how do we? reconcile that with uh, other encounters which are not very positive. In fact, people are essentially, I mean, describing a medical, a torturous medical experiment. Uh, I mean, obviously a very negative experience. How do you reconcile the two? Uh, I can't reconcile them, but I have a few ideas. 
uh, one was that the 50s and 60s encounters were much friendlier and open on the part of the aliens. I don't know if that was a different group or some change in policy, but by the, the 80s and 90s, the abductions got uh, very scary. Um, so, you know, whether there was a government campaign, I won't blame the government for everything, but when humans are so fearful, it's kind of hard to cut through what was real and what wasn't or what was exaggerated. I mean, and then and then it's how you take it afterwards, because you can be a victim and, and I know there's that mentality and, and await the alien invasion and go, oh, I was so mistreated. Or you can make lemon aid out of a lemon and look into consciousness and, and the cosmos and do what so many um, abductees have done from Travis Walton, the Allagash uh, abductees, several of them, and uh, Jim Penniston and John Burroughs all are into sort of metaphysical, quantum physics, you know, reaching further, how does this make sense? So to some degree, it's what you make of it. To some degree, it seemed to change between the 50s, 60s, and then the 80s, 90s. And, you know, I, that's the best I can do on that. Um, even, you know, I don't want to necessarily equate abductions to rape cases, but even even that, women need to, or men if they're raped, need to fight back and not just accept the alien, the victim uh, mentality, because that's not good for them. You, you need to realize, you know, this happened to you, look into it, and but some people tend to dwell in it. What do you make of uh, Dr. David Jacobs, a retired professor at Temple University, Oh, uh, and, and his... I don't know. I don't know what to make of of his work. Um, I can only know that what's in me is what is in Tibus, because I know that we have a, a shared consciousness, a link that has never left, and so I can only be who and what I am, which is what I see in him, which is uh, someone of intelligence, gentleness and wishing to help us how often are uh, without you in... too much interference. Okay. How often are you in contact with Tybus? I, whenever I do, whenever I write, like the book, my newsletters that I do uh, so often, every, I've done them since 1983, actually, without uh, missing a, a month. Um, um, the line keeps hiccuping, so I lost my, my line of thought. Yeah, we've had that trouble er, er, earlier. I, I'm not sure what's happening. Um, however, um, we'll so on. anyway, that's, uh, I can only go by, by what I've experienced. And maybe I was lucky and I hit some really nice aliens. I don't know. I, I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I, I'm very passionate about what I've discovered out of all these years. And what would your, uh, advice be to someone who suspects, although they have no confirmation, suspects that they may have or they may be an experiencer, uh, would you suggest to them that they go uh, undergo a regression? Uh, or in some cases, uh, let's say they have sort of negative images, uh, little flashes of this memory. Is it better to let sleeping dogs lie? 
Probably not, but um, certainly it shouldn't interfere with uh, daily life and taking care of children and going to the job and things like that. Um, when it feels right, it's probably explore it. And the best way would be through a regression? Well, you have to go to a, a really good uh, understanding hypnotist, which Dr. Sprinkle was, uh, but uh, he's retired, and it's kind of hard to find a, hypnoti- a medical hypnotist who's trained, who really is open to uh, UFOs and aliens. Well, I, so, you'd be surprised. I mean, the, the regression therapy field is really just growing by leaps and bounds. It's almost gotten to the point where it's become mainstream. Uh, right here in Toronto, I could probably uh, name three or four and just off the top mm-hmm. of my head. But um, All right, listen, we are uh, sadly out of time. Diane, I enjoyed meeting you. I enjoyed our conversation, and I, I hope we'll too. do it again. Okay. Okay. Uh, Earth Change Predictions... Dot com is the website. Uh, my thanks to Ian Robertson, uh, Albert Vinzel, back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for the ride. Carl Gallops will be here as in the days of Noah coming Wednesday, November the 4th. Check it out at the live events page, strangeplanet.ca. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.